0: move from a hospital scene to a wedding scene here. And uh, that's probably a good thing, right? Because we don't like hospitals, most of us. And we do like weddings, most of us. But we're going to see tonight that not everyone likes weddings. And uh, maybe some of us don't like them as much as we think. Our text is Mark 2 and uh, parts of Mark 3, so uh, follow along as I read. I'll have to flip it. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine to old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, tonight. We pray that you would make uh, your word clear. All kinds of things happening in this story. Uh, Grant us sharp minds and soft hearts. Press these uh, truths into reality in our hearts. Show us great things about yourself and perhaps things about ourselves that we're less than encouraged about. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's a commercial that perhaps you've seen. It looks like a typical uh, laundry commercial for Bounce. There's some sweet housewife doing laundry and um, talking quietly to the camera about the valuable, uh, wonderful contribution of uh, the Bounce dryer bar when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a muscular, barely-dressed bald man burst, explodes through the wall of her house on a, uh, on a wave runner, yelling as he does old spice body spray makes you smell like power <laughs> old spice body spray makes you smell like power jumps off the wave runner and says it's so powerful it smell it sells itself in other people's commercials <laughs> and i saw that and thought that's that's genius that's that's marketing genius and it's also Uh, illustrates uh, a principle that there are some things so powerful they can scarcely be contained. I'm not sure Old Spice Body Spray is one of those. (laughs) Perhaps it needs to be contained. But um, perhaps like our powerful salesmen, uh, they need to be contained because they can be intrusive. Very strong, powerful things can be intrusive, even destructive. And we're going to see that principle tonight, that uh, there's a tendency, perhaps... No, there certainly is. A tendency among folks, especially nice folks, to sort of celebrate Jesus, especially, uh, well, how do I say this? A tendency among nice folks to celebrate Jesus because they assume that Jesus is a nice person with a nice agenda and that they would support, he would support their niceness and their agenda. And I appreciate them because they're nice, but I think perhaps they're they're not paying attention very well. Especially not to the early chapters of Mark. Because what Jesus does effectively is explode on the scene, claim to be a king, announce the coming of a kingdom, and basically declare, I'm here to restore everything. And he displays a shocking power as he does so. He has the power to actually make this happen. It's a remarkable power to effect the change that he promises. And that's not always convenient. It's not always convenient. It's not always welcome. We're going to see that tonight. It, we might even at times find ourselves defending ourselves uh, back into the corner, maybe even opposing uh, what Jesus would change in us. We're going to see tonight because Jesus and his kingdom are present in power, that we have to remain pliable. And I couldn't really find a good word. Flexible is not it, pliable is close. But well, I'll explain it as we go. Because Jesus is present and Power, we have to remain pliable. Okay? And uh, we have three different scenes, sort of made the point by flipping into three slides, um, and uh, we actually move places as we do, and we, we have three different uh, real portraits, if you will. We have a time for celebration, a time for restoration, and a time for opposition. So uh, at the beginning here, as we begin uh, this section in Mark. In 2.18, we have a question. It's really a contextual question. Folks come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, how come your disciples don't act like everybody else's disciples? How come your men don't fast, but everyone else's men do fast? And um, Jesus has an interesting reply. In verse 19, he says, uh, Because it's not a time to mourn, it's a time to celebrate. Uh, it's a wedding. Uh, I'm, I'm the bridegroom. And now is a time for celebration. So let me explain what's going on here. Uh, the folks of that day, especially the scrupulous, the the separatists, the ones that were trying really hard to be holy, uh, they went above and beyond what the Old Testament would have commanded for fasting. The Old Testament actually only really told folks to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, and then during times of mourning that they would uh, deny themselves food. Um, but it's likely that these communities, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees and maybe some other communities, decided that's not enough. Uh, We need to do extra credit, if you will, because God's been angry with us for a long time. And so we think, just to be safe, we need to fast twice a week. And that's believed to be the standard of these these men. If you're serious about following God and knowing God, and if your disciples are serious about you, Jesus, they should be fasting eh, twice a week at least, and your guys don't fast at all. And Jesus' reply is, but there's a wedding. It's a time to celebrate. And uh, we see Jesus' response is that uh, there's a wedding going on because the wedding party is here. The wedding party is present. Jesus says, uh, how can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? And Jesus here is calling himself the bridegroom. He's saying, I am the bridegroom. And that's, that's strange language, but again, it's sort of contextual. In the Old Testament, God himself uh, claims to be the great bridegroom. in Hosea. When God's people are, uh, they've been about as bad as they can possibly be. They've been sent far away. They're a a total mess. They've been unfaithful. Uh, God says, "I I will be their husband. I will be their bridegroom. And I will pursue them. And I will love them and be merciful and steadfast to them and faithful to them. I am the great bridegroom. And here Jesus is, at the beginning of his ministry, saying, I am the bridegroom. Jesus is saying here, I am God. And I have come for my people. Both things. This is a shocking thing that Jesus is saying, um, and He's saying, "Well, because the bridegroom is here, you know, it, it, it would be completely inappropriate for you to be mourning. Uh, this is a wedding. There's wedding etiquette. The wedding party is present, and there's wedding etiquette, and it's not appropriate to, to mourn at a wedding. I mean, I, I, you know, hey guys, I'm here. The wedding is about to start. You, you should, you should stop your mourning now." There's this, there are ways to behave at a wedding, and mourning is not one of them. Um, I was looking up for, for an illustration for this, and uh, there's actually a lot of... It's disturbing how many. A lot of websites devoted to ruining someone else's wedding. Like, it's really interesting and really sort of funny in a sad, sick sort of way. I'll just let you know. There are lots of ways to ruin someone's wedding. Um, I'll just give you that as a free piece of information. <laughs> uh, I have another experience. Uh, it was two months before uh, Luda and I were supposed to get married. We'd only known each other for a few months. We had a very uh, quick engagement. I, ha- I had to do that, because if she got to know me very well, she wouldn't marry me. So uh, it was two months uh, into this thing, and about two months away from our marriage, and uh, we went to a Russian wedding out of town. I didn't know the people. I didn't know anybody there. And, but I had traveled quite a bit, and I was used to cross-cultural experiences. I'd spent time abroad. And it was fine. That was a wedding. So, or so I thought. And it seemed pretty normal. I didn't know what was going on. It was in Russian. Um, But, you know, intuitively sort of pick up, like, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, he's preaching forever. Oh, okay, now's the time for the vows. And then he's, like, going to say, yeah, you and you are together. And now I present you, husband and wife. And everyone claps. Right? That's what's supposed to happen. Well, about that time, instead of doing that, like, everyone huddled up front, all the families, and they started to cry. They actually started to weep loudly, especially the women. The women began to weep very loudly for their daughters that they were losing forever. And everyone in the whole building got really emotional and started crying. And I was like, what is going on? (laughs) Now's the time to turn around and say, husband and bride, hey, everybody, hey, and dad. Now, I'm not saying that was inappropriate to you. Um, I've argued with my wife that I think it's a little crazy. But cultural assumptions aside, um, It's strange. There are better times to cry. Cry that you're losing your daughter the night before. Uh, This is the day of celebration. It's a time of celebration. And what we have here are folks that are mourning. And Jesus is saying, why are you mourning? God has come for his people. There is a wedding. The bridegroom is here. There are ways to act at a wedding. And he goes on to issue some warnings. And if you've read the Bible very much or grew up in the church, you've probably read this or heard it a number of times and you wonder, what's the deal? You go from a wedding to like... Old clothes and patches and wineskins and wine. What's the deal? And uh, I'm about to clear up the mystery for you. You can thank me later. These are all things that have to do with a wedding. This this is wedding apparel. Weddings in the ancient Near East had wine. uh, Lots of wine, actually, if you go back and read the story of Jesus' first miracle. And uh, you, if you were going as a wedding guest, would... Dig out your best clothes. And at that time, your best clothes will have still been pretty worn. So you'd think, how do I make my best clothes look good? Well, I've got to patch it. And what Jesus is doing here is issuing some wedding warnings. He's saying, in effect, hey, be careful how you fix your garment because that patch is going to stick out. You know, you're not going to match exactly. The patch is going to look newer than the old stuff, and it's going to look out a little bit. And then you're going to wash it, and the patch is going to shrink, and it's going to tear the old cloth, and be careful how you do your wine, because you made all this new wine, but it's still fermenting. You're going to put it into this uh, old, crusty, non-pliable wine skin, and it's going to continue to expand, and it's going to explode, and you're going to lose the wine skin and the wine. But Jesus is doing more than just warning them about how to behave at a wedding and what peril to take. I think he's actually issuing them a real warning, which is, Hey. Um, I'm the, I am I'm the, I'm the bridegroom, and I'm here, and your morning's inappropriate, and you need to know that there's a new reality at work. Something new and something powerful is here, and it's going to push on you, and it's going to expand on you, and it's going to inconvenience you, and unless you're pliable, it's going to hurt you, maybe even destroy you. Are, are you that hard, uh, inflexible, worn piece of cloth or wineskin, or are you pliable and flexible enough to bend with what God is doing. This is the warning that Jesus is issuing here. So I have a question for you. It's this time of celebration. And uh, this question is particularly directed to those of you that consider yourselves Christians, especially mature Christians. You're sure you've been a Christian. You are a Christian. So uh, not to exclude anybody else, but this is particularly directed to those folks. Uh, Is there any celebration in you over Jesus' presence? Do, Do you celebrate this? At all. Or is the idea of Jesus being present and at work in your life maybe instead of comforting you give you dread? <laughs> uh, oh yeah, God's close to me and uh, that means he sees what, I do, what I'm doing and that's what I feel and that's very non-comforting. Uh, his presence should bring you peace and joy. And are, are you inappropriately often, maybe all the time, mopey? Are you inflexibly mopey, mourning. I mean, you're the person that would go to the wedding and just quietly, subtly sort of complain even while you're there. It's, It's a wedding. You cannot enter into the joy of that event because you're mopey and sad. And actually, it's worse than that because you're not just mopey and sad, and this hurts to say, but you're selfish. You are incapable of getting outside of your own pity party long enough to enter into someone else's joy. It really is. It's, it's that. Now, I'm not saying there's not reason to be sad in this world. There's lots of reasons to be sad. Uh, all the bad stuff in the world, in your life, in others' lives, certainly. But if at times you cannot get out of that enough to enter into someone else's joy, there's something wrong. Something wrong. And Jesus is saying, hey, the king is here. The bridegroom's here. He's come to, to do good things. You have reason to be joyful. And trust me, y'all that know me know this is a hard message for me. My baseline of natural joy is sub-zero. And uh, when I'm joyful, it registers like one on a scale of one to a hundred. So I'm preaching to myself here. I'm not picking on you. But this is true. This is what Jesus is saying. So we have a time for celebration, and we also have a time for Restoration and uh, we see this in the second section and the third section and uh, the background here is uh, Jesus and his men walking through the field on the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest and they're accused Uh, and it's it's sort of a funny section they're walking through the grain fields plucking heads of grain the Pharisees were saying look why are they doing what's not lawful And I think, when are they saying this? Like, the image I get in my mind is Jesus and his men walking through the fields, and all of a sudden the Pharisees, like, pop up. It's like whack a Pharisee. You know that game of Pharisees popping out of the stuff? Um, Where do they come from? And I'm sort of suspicious that they've begun to spy on Jesus. I don't know. Uh, It seems reasonable from the text. But what we have here are men that are offended. They're offended by Jesus. They're offended by his actions. uh, Because Jesus, according to them and his men, are breaking the Sabbath. They're already not fasting enough. And here, you have a, a regulation in the Ten Commandments that we should rest on the Sabbath. It's one of God's commandments. Based on creation and redemption, that God saved his people, we should rest on the Sabbath. It's good for us. And he commanded us to do it. And Jesus here, in verse 23, and his men are picking heads of grain, which is considered... By them to be reaping, which is work. Um, they're offended because Jesus is working on the Sabbath. And in the next uh, episode, he's entering the synagogue on the Sabbath. And they're watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Because healing would be work. So we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath according to the Old Testament. And uh, they're offended by Jesus because he, he, according to their understanding, is working on the Sabbath. Now, uh, it's not at all clear from the Old Testament that what Jesus is doing here is actually work. They are being more scrupulous than the Old Testament. In fact, between the Old Testament and the time of Jesus, they developed an oral tradition. And in that oral tradition, they had 39 different ways you could break the Sabbath that were punishable by death. 39 different ways punishable by death that you could break the Sabbath. What you have here are men that really care about the law so much they think you need to encircle the law so you can't even get close to breaking it. And what Jesus is going to tell us, not only today, but in future weeks, is you can do that and actually completely miss the whole point altogether. That's sort of what we have here. So they're offended by Jesus uh, and, and uh, his breaking their scruples. And uh, we see Jesus begin to defend himself. And he uh, defends himself in the second episode here uh, in the fields by talking about David. Let's see, that's not it. Um, says, have you never read what David did? And he goes on and talks about the example of David and his men who ate from the temple. They basically went into a place they weren't supposed to and ate what they weren't supposed to because they needed to do so. And the way Jesus words this would have been sort of a poignant, a, a, a painful prod. Haven't you read? Aren't you guys Old Testament scholars? Don't you know that section where David does this? And in the next section when he defends himself, he actually does it from logic. Um... He brings the man with a withered hand. You know, this is show and tell. Here's the show part. See this man with a withered hand? Um, is it lawful, this is what's the issue, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus is boiling this down to the strongest logical argument. Actually, logically, this is called the horns of a dilemma. He's pinning them on the horns of a dilemma. All you philosophy nerds are shaking your heads. Um, you may be saying, this is a little unfair, Jesus, but uh, this is what he's doing. So he's, uh, he's defending from both the Old Testament and from logic. But he's not just out to defend himself. He's actually out to do something greater. The goal here, again, is restoration. Uh, Jesus is out to restore things. And uh, we see in this section here, as he's arguing with them in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or kill, that Jesus, again, is painting things in the starkest terms possible. And what he's saying, in effect, is, when he's saying it's what's lawful, men, what would you have God do? What would you have God do? I mean, he's the one that gave you the law. It's his law. Would you have him harm or heal? Would you have him heal or kill? You yes, can't say that without it affecting the way you say it. Heal or kill. Yeah, which which is it? Um, they, they come together. And not to do one is to do the other. Which would you have me do? Which would you have God do? And, uh, of course, uh, they're silent. Because um, you don't want to answer that kind of question. And, and Jesus is out to restore The point of the Sabbath. He does it again in uh, the first time in 2.27. After he explains and defends himself, he says, Don't you know, basically, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's correcting their understanding. See, they think that if they follow the scruples that they've made enough, God will actually bless them. That God will draw near and be favorable to them. They have to earn his favor. That's what they think. If we're extra scrupulous, God will care about us more and Bless us, and what Jesus is saying is no, no, no. You see, the Sabbath is a blessing for those that love God and know God. He gave the Sabbath to them as a blessing, it, not as some burdensome obligation, but because He knows what they're like—that they need a rest, that they're creatures, that they work hard, that they're anxious, and they need a day to rest. It is a blessing. This is good. It's supposed to be good. And Jesus here is trying to correct them and say, you're missing all the good stuff. You're actually making it a burden and not something that's good. And Jesus is trying to restore that goodness. And also trying to restore the man. He's interested in restoring this man's brokenness and healing him. And lastly here, as Jesus sets out to restore uh, the situation, he makes a claim. Verse 28, he says, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is his last argument here. And that phrase, Son of Man, is one we talked about a couple of times. The first time he used it, I believe, it was when he claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, something only God can do. And so the term itself, Son of Man, is tied up with authority. And here he's saying, Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, it's one of God's laws from the very beginning. And Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the Sabbath, what it's about, you need to know me. If, um, if you want to know what's really important to God regarding the Sabbath, and you really want it to be restorative, you need to center it around me. Yeah, that's what he's saying. And uh, it's remarkable. Now, I'm going to step back for a second and tell you some of this whole section up. What Jesus is doing here, although it's filled with conflict, if you haven't noticed, these are all controversy stories. Uh, Jesus is actually seeking to restore. He wants to heal this man. He's arguing. uh, God wants to bring restoration and healing all the time, even on the Sabbath. This man right here needs to be healed. You would have me let him continue to suffer for your scruple. That's not the way God works. God is out to bring healing and restoration to this broken world. Uh, So what Jesus is doing is proposing something that's only good. He's coming to restore our perverted understanding of the way God works and his law, but also to restore everything else. However, he's also claiming in this project of restoration, I'm at the very middle of everything. Every single bit of it, I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle of the Sabbath. I'm in the middle of the healing. And I'm in the middle... As a bridegroom. And if you're inflexible about this, I'm going to tear you up. If you're inflexible about this, the kingdom power that I'm bringing to restore all things will hurt you. Possibly destroy you. You're either going to be flexible and conform around me, or you're going to be broken around me. And so, of course, this leads to opposition. (laughs) And how could do otherwise and we see the opposition has already begun there was suspicion to begin with but in uh, the third chapter here in the synagogue the opposition is uh, the hostilities are, are open even if they're not being spoken they're, they're waiting for Jesus to heal they know he can do it they know they're waiting to see whether he would heal them he already, they know he can they just want to know are you going to do it and break our scruples so we can accuse you So they're already deeply suspicious. But we see that the opposition is not just from their side. Uh, There's a sense in which Jesus is opposing them as well. And I want to be careful how I talk about this, because I think Jesus has their good in mind. But he has to be harsh with them. And he is. Uh, and, And you get it right here. He could have easily healed this man five hours later at sundown on the next day. He could have. He doesn't do it for a couple of reasons. One, I think he's making a point. God does not value your scruples. God is a God of healing restoration. He's going to do it now. But two, you really need to hear this and know this, that you're opposing God's ways and you got it completely wrong. And the fact I'm getting in your face about this is actually good for you because you don't understand God. You think you have to perform for him. And you can't perform for him. You can't please him that way. It, it doesn't work. You're actually, a, you're actually opposed to him this way. And we see in verse 5 that Jesus uh, knows, or you can, he's angry, uh, he knows and grieves at the hardness of their hearts. Um, the word grieve tells us he actually has their best interest in mind. He's angry at them, but he's also broken up that they're obstinate and stubborn and have to have things their way. He, he wants it to be different than what it is. And this episode is, hopefully, step one in addressing their misunderstanding. But that's up to them. And we'll see where they go. Uh, And where they go in verse 6 is they go out, the Pharisees, who were the super-religious sectarian so-and-sos, and held counsel with the Herodians how to destroy him. Now, you need to know who the Herodians are. So the Pharisees were the far, 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 far right, super scrupulous, separated, if we're super, super holy, God will intervene for us, come and destroy the evil Roman oppressors. Well, the Herodians would have been the far, far, far left who are actually playing power parties with the Romans. We'll do whatever you want us to in order to remain in control. What would you like us to do for you, Caesar? Okay, we'll do that. Uh, They couldn't care less about God and his ways. So the Pharisees go out and conspire with the Herodians. You get that? I mean, this is like cats and dogs, Yankees and Red Sox. Um, A good measure of how much you dislike someone or distrust them is who you're willing to align yourself with against them. And here you have two enemies that really don't like each other at all, deep distrust, say, hey, this Jesus character is nothing but trouble. Let's get rid of him. Now, at this point, Jesus is just some itinerant preacher, right? What's the big deal? Uh, Jesus is claiming to be the center of everything. He's a threat to them. He's a threat to both parties, and they know that. And uh, they've determined to go out and destroy him. Now, there's irony here. I don't know if you picked up on it. Um, The the Pharisees are actually accusing Jesus of being irreligious because he's breaking the Sabbath, because he's healing on the Sabbath. Uh, They go out and plot murder that afternoon with them Uh, sometimes we're very blind to ourselves like that Um, that's what's going on and i think we see here in verse six actually and and i'm making a stretch here but in the pharisees on the super far right and the herodians on the super far left we have a picture of the breadth of humanity opposed to jesus and somewhere in that continuum you and i belong we really do because i think we're threatened by jesus too They know what he wants to do, which is move in, establish his kingdom, restore all things with himself at the center. And they have vested interests in keeping things the way they are. And so do we. We don't want him to move into the center and change everything. Maybe change one or two things, but not everything. But that's not the way Jesus works. It's not the last word of uh, the story. There's, There's one more, and it's a hint. And it's back in the first story of the wedding where we read about the bridegroom uh, in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they'll fast. What is that all about? Jesus is saying, hey, it's time to celebrate because the bridegroom's here. Oh, by the way, you'll fast later because the bridegroom will be taken away. Take it. At this point, the disciples should have been saying, hey, we don't have to fast. That's awesome. Hey, what do you mean you're going somewhere? Like, taken away? Who's taking you? It's actually a, a language that hints at violence. Who's, who's taking you where? And you put these two things together. These people are plotting, and Jesus is going to be taken away. And what does it tell us about? It tells us Jesus is going to die somewhere. Well, I also find out later in Mark that this is God's plan. That God opposes all this evil, but his plan for addressing it is not to destroy everyone, but to send us unto the cross to die. That sins might be forgiven. That that power that will change everything would not rule from the top down and crush, but move into the interior and change from the inside out. That's God's plan to restore all things. So Jesus comes with an unbending agenda and the power to make it happen. And his goal is to bring restoration and joy. Uh, But also we're deeply threatened by that because we have to give up the center. He's claiming the center of everything. So uh, one of our better writers in the last century uh, gave us an analogy, and it's of a living house. Imagine yourself as a living house. So pick your house. Some of you have already thought this through. You're like, I know exactly what kind of house I want. So imagine your living house. It's really easy for me to imagine my living house because I live in it. it. needs to be painted, floors crooked, one bathroom, children's diapers everywhere, cold, upstairs right here don't work. What else? Um, I know it needs work. There you go. And God comes in to rebuild that house. Now, at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping up the leaks in the roof, things that you knew needed to be done all along, so you're not surprised. But soon after, he starts knocking around on things, and and it hurts. It hurts uh, terribly, and it doesn't seem to make any sense to you. Uh, What in the world is he doing? The explanation is that God is busy building quite a different house than what you ever imagined. He's throwing up a new wing here. He's leveling the floor. He's running up towers. And the mistake is you thought he was going to fix one or two things and make you a nice little cottage. A nice little, nice cottage. Uh, But he is actually in the process of building a grand palace. Because his intent is to move in and live there. You want God to come and fix one or two things for you. He actually wants to move in and live there and fix it all up and restore it and make you like himself and grant you his joy and his peace. So uh, there are always at least two or three kinds of folks here and I'm always honest about that. Um, And that's the folks that aren't sure where they are or they know they're not Christians and folks that know they are Christians and don't always live like it or act like it. So uh, if you're not a christian or you don't know what you think about all this um yeah it's likely that you know yeah my house is not the way it should be there's there's certainly a couple things that need help and you may be wondering i don't know if i can fix these things or not you don't have to fix them yourself you have a god that's willing to move into your mess out of love and stay and change, and fix, and restore you, and not make you some completely different person, but to make you the kind of person you know you should have been all along. And for the rest of you, the, those of you that uh, call yourselves Christians, or are really Christians, um, slightly different question. You know one or two things that you really want God to work on. Yeah. God's out to the door, and you're like, here's the to-do list. <laughs> Could you fix that and that? But you also are secretly, uh, and if you're even maybe if you're more brash, you're even openly saying, "But don't go in the closet. Actually, uh, don't do anything in the attic. I know those places are terrible. I sort of like them that way. Just, just please leave me those things. Fix these one or two things, but please leave me those things because I love those messed up areas of brokenness." And here, the challenge for you is to believe what you say you believe, which is you know God loves you and is good. That he'll fix those one or two things you want fixed. But those things you want so much, you don't need them. And you know they're bad for you. And destroying you. And you actually hate parts of those things. And God will move in. He's not ashamed of you. And work on those things. And grant you his joy. And restore you make you like himself. Let's pray together.